Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchy, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. For 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their stories. Many of them were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. When the young Cajuns went overseas, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations and it had a profound impact on their sense of a Cajun identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long lost pride in their heritage. When the military needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchy to bridge the language gap. During World War II, Frenchy was a popular GI. He could get things. He could translate for army commanders. He could help locate and root out the bad guys. He spoke freely with the locals and was often invited into the homes of French and Belgian people for dinners and extended stays. Some developed lifelong friendships with these French families. A few actually married into them. Dennis Neal was one of those Cajuns who came back home to Louisiana with a French war bride. This is the story of how a Cajun boy from Pointe-aux-Chains in Lower Terrebonne Parish made his way to Paris as a jeep driver and personal interpreter for an American colonel and his British counterpart. Along the way, Dennis met his future wife, Jeanette Cardinal, who was the daughter of a local Frenchman with ties to the French underground. I had the fortunate opportunity to record a telephone interview with Dennis Neal in 2006. Growing up in a coastal community in the 1930s was quite different than it is today. Pointe-aux-Chans was once a flourishing, self-sufficient village. Today, only remnants of it remain. Dennis was raised as a petit habitant, a poor Cajun farm boy whose father grew various cash crops to support the family. They lived off the land that his grandfather had purchased long ago. He had bought a, a, a three sections of land down Pointe-aux-Chans. And as here, my grandmother kept that for when my father and his brother was old enough to work the land. So he thought he was raised up as a farmer. So that's why I was raised on the farm. And the Pontesan is a little by the branch of the Terrebonne Fire. And it ran in between by the Fouche and Terrebonne. And we uh, see the Pontesan is the, uh, the buyer of Pontesan divide the two parish. On the, on the east side is the Fouche, and on the, uh, on the west side is the Terrebonne. And our property was bo on both parish. My dad built his house on the Terrebonne side, the buyer, and my uncle built his house on the, the Fouche side. So <laughs> we were, we were two, 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 uh, two brothers, two different parishes. Like most Cajuns from down the bayou, Dennis grew up speaking only French and later learned English in grammar school. He walked three miles down a dirt road to school every day, rain or shine, sometimes barefooted, so as not to ruin his only pair of shoes from drudging in the mud along the way. He and his brother picked up crawfish by the sack to bring home. His simple American life came to an abrupt halt with the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941. A year and a half later, he was drafted into the Army. He wound up in England in January of 1944 in a special military intelligence unit 
where his skills as a French speaker and a school bus driver came in handy. I was assigned to my unit. You see, I went overseas as a replacement. I wasn't assigned to any special unit. But the Supreme Headquarters wanted to form a military intelligence unit. And I was one of the first five that would speak at the replacement place at the center to be assigned to this unit. And I was sent to London, and I'll never forget where it was 20 Grosvenor Square in London, where the office was, uh, the first office I went, the first place I went to, <coughs> to get interviewed. And after we had got interviewed, we were sent to an English camp right outside of London, about 15 miles out of London, there was a little town by the name of Bakersfield. We was, uh, as, as we got the uh, members to, to the unit, you know, they were recruit, recruiting some men, uh, the, the personnel and you know, all that, the officers and enlisted men and drivers and whatever they want, you know. Well, they was all sent to this camp. And uh, after we got all our, all our equipment, so we, uh, we moved out of that camp and we moved to uh, one of the big, uh, real estate was a big mansion like uh, the side unit was a, a, a very small unit you know it, I, I forgot how many we were in it uh we moved to this mansion there and uh, until uh, well that's when we start decide who what we're going to do everybody was, what kind of job they were uh, going to do you see with because our, our, we we had teams you had a group that after the invasion of France, that we would have some teams with different armies following the troops going towards Germany. That's when I was, uh, well, my job was uh, my commanding officer wanted to drive So I took him over there and uh, he did all right. He said, well, I guess so. He said, I, I, when I was going to school, the last year I went to school, I was the, the, my, the, the bus driver. But we didn't have no driver, so I had to buy my, uh, drive my own self to school to uh, Homer. You know, my last year of high school, well, I used to drive the school bus from Pondestan all the way to Homer. And I took and I took two years of French in school, to first and second year French, because you just, you just learned the basics, but I was making A's in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, you grew up a Cajun. Uh, now, Mr. Dennis, why, why did the military uh, choose you out of the pool of replacements for this special military intelligence group? Well, that, that, one, that, that, that would be one of the reasons that, uh, because I spoke French, and uh, I was a, you know, a driver, you know, because I had to drive the bus, you had to be pretty good. <laughs> How did the Army find out that you were uh, bilingual, that you could speak French? Well, it was in my records. Yeah, when I went to Camp Oregon, that, that, that was all, you know, they, 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 they give you IQ tests and all that stuff, you know. They, they knew all about my history, where, where I was from, uh, nationality, and all that, you know. And you see, about uh, after it was form the unit was formed, but you see, uh, Supreme Headquarters is uh, the headquarters for the Allies. So uh, our unit, we was uh, the kind of work we had to do is uh, we had to have English. So our unit was half American, half English. And uh, I, I wind up, I was driving boat, boat commanding officer. 
the, the, the English uh, commanding officer, he was riding with the with my American, so I was the driver. And I work. Our job was, you know, before the invasion, uh, they had uh, these uh, bomb raids over France and Germany and all that, you know. And some of them planes was shot down. So that's when the the French people, like the FFI and the resistance, if they could get to this guy before the Germans get him, they would hide him. And even they even had a camp, two camps in the central part of France, where they would bring him. And uh, and the Germans didn't know anything about it. The the, the French people would let let, uh, let the American people uh, where they were, and so they they was able to go and drop supply by plane. You know, at night they would go drop supply to to to, to these guys. His unit was designated as the 6801st Military Intelligence. His two commanding officers worked closely with the FFI, or the French Forces of the Interior, better known as the Maquis. Although his primary job was as a jeep driver and an interpreter for these two officers, he knew that communication and the transfer of information among the Allies on the ground was critical to the larger mission. That's, that's, that's why we got involved with the French resistance and the French FFI, you see. Uh, we, we, we were getting information from them too, you see. Our job was to follow the front line, and as these guys come through the line, they had to come to us to be interviewed. Uh, so we had five different questions, uh, forms they had to fill. Now they was missing in action. Okay, this guy said, well, he's, he's, he's alive, and uh, can let the, the parents know. We let the Washington, D.C. that, okay, so-and-so is, is alive, and he came through the line and uh, let the parents know. And they also had information about some of the brothers got killed, and where if it was buried somewhere in France. And they also have, uh, like, uh, war criminals, I see we, we had to, they would give us a, a information on war criminals. Like the Nuremberg trial, that's all the information that they had was came from our unit. Like uh, other troops going to France. And uh, one of the reasons why they, would, they went to France so fast is because they, our units knew where every, every German unit was what kind of unit, what kind of equipment you have to use. And so we, we just flew right up to, to the uh, German border. I mean, uh, in no time at all. Now, the reason why your unit was aware of all of these uh, uh, locations of the enemy, is that because of your uh, communications with the French resistance? Yeah, yeah, we, get, we, we, we got a lot of information from them. Uh, even before the invasion of France, uh, the, 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 the French, they had some French, uh, they had part of the French army in, in London, I mean England. Mm -hmm. And they would communicate with some of the French underground in France to give all, uh, any, any information they could get. So they, they, they helped, the, I mean, it helped the army a lot. 
so they could know they knew what they was up against. Following the Normandy invasion, Dennis and his detachment crossed the English Channel and began working closely with other units on the ground. These units were responsible for interrogating and bringing in downed airmen who had been shot down during the D-Day battle. His main responsibility was to drive around these two colonels who were in charge of this intelligence detachment. They made it all the way to Paris for the liberation in August 1944. Shortly thereafter, he met a French girl, Jeanette Cardinal, and the romance began. My job was just, that's all, thing, that's all I had to do. Is, uh, just stand by and uh, whenever he needed me, uh, he sent for me. But you see, uh, what I was with the, I was, the English Colonel was with me, uh, with us, but he spoke French. He knew some people in Paris. That's why, that's why I went to Paris that they were liberated. The Paris was liberated by the resistance, the FFI. When the troopers are close, close to Paris, uh, the, the English colonel and my, my commanding officer, well, he told me, he said, get ready, we're going to Paris. <laughs> so they said, yeah, quite ready to uh, liberate Paris. And we took off, I mean, just, just we and the two colonels, we, we, we went and joined a, a group of uh, uh, French resistance, you know, the, the FFI. They had a group that was waiting for us to go into Paris when it was liberated. So we, we headed towards Paris and we went into, uh, I don't know, uh, Paris, is, they got Port Orléans, it's on, uh, on the side of uh, Orléans. France, you know, and uh, we, we went to that part of Paris, and we went all the way to the, almost to the Champs-Élysées, you know, Champs-Élysées, the main, where they had their, um, the, the, the big parade after the, the day after the liberation of Paris. Dennis stayed in Paris for about 11 months, during which time he courted his soon-to-be wife. So uh, the English colonel knew some people in Paris, and that's where he brought it. I guess he, we went to uh, to their apartment, and we, for the first time in months, I had slept in the bed. Oh man, I went. Oh, I had a mattress sick over my head. <laughs> what do you think I slept? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh yeah. We drove the jeep up into the court, big courtyard they got, and we went up to the apartment and. I had a good meal there with the people there, and, and I had a, <coughs> I had a good, I had a uh, good time with the maid there. Uh, uh, served me my, my food and all that. <laughs> and that's that's how my wife found out that I was going to the apartment where her mother take care of with these maids. You know, say, oh, she said, we know, we met her. A French-speaking soldier there, and he's going to the apartment. Out there. He was invited to the the people. <clears throat> the people that we stayed with was uh, the, uh, the kids, uh, the children of uh, the uh, people that live in that one apartment where my my mother-in-law was taking care of. And uh, the colonel, two colonel, was invited for supper. 
So of course they brought you, their driver, and their interpreter. Well, I drove them. I drove them to the apartment, and uh, <clears throat> when I got there, my wife was uh, right when next to the, the door that was where the colonel went in. And after the colonel went in, the colonel says, "Just wait, and I will tell you what time to come pick me back up." And I started talking to my wife. So she came out to come talk to you. Yeah, she was. She was right at the apartment. You know? uh -huh. uh, when I was waiting. I guess she was uh, right on the sidewalk there when she said She knew I was coming, so we started talking, and, uh, and then, then the colonel came down there later. He, he saw me talking to uh, my wife. I said, hey, well, you can do whatever you want. He said, uh, you can wait here. I guess I see you got a, you got a friend here. <laughs> and uh, wait for me over here. So <laughs> what I did, we opened uh, the door, you know, to get a little courtyard, you know. So I just drove the Jeep inside and waited for the colonel while I was, you know, meeting my, uh, my wife's parents and all. They, 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 they were, they were, she was taking care of, she was living in the, at the entrance, you know, they got a little, a little apartment. Like they, they would take all the mail and all that, people that live in the apartment. What they call them, concierge. You know, the concierge is somebody that take care of the apartment. My colonel, right, he, uh, he uh, uh, went and got uh, some hotel to stay in. He was going to move. Our, our main unit was in Normandy. So uh, he went and requisitioned some hotel, hotel to stay in. So when we had all that taken care of, we went back to Normandy and got the whole unit and moved into this hotel. It's a hotel right off the Champs-Élysées, not far from the Archer Triumph. And I still remember the name of the hotel, Hotel Windsor. And uh, the officers was living in the Hotel Windsor, and the enlisted man was in a little another hotel, Hotel Renault. Hotel Renault. It was a little side street. It was right right in the corner from the main hotel, that uh, other hotel. <coughs> I kept seeing uh, every little chance I had to go see her, and for it, it really got it really got serious. <laughs> and that's what that's why we got married. When the war in Europe ended on May 8, 1945, Dennis was in Epinal, France. With considerable effort, perhaps from his bosses, he was able to get his wife and their newborn son safe transportation to Houma, Louisiana. Although she could not speak any English, she fit right at home in the French-speaking Bayou community in Lower Terrebonne. She was a war bride. She was brought to, uh, well, to the state by the Red Cross. She, she had to go, the, the, the boat, the ship went to Southampton, England, and pick up all the war brides in England. And they, they came and they brought them to New York. And in New York, they, they put her on a, on a train to New Orleans. Uh, in New Orleans, they had my, my parents and my uncle that uh, was that way at the train station to pick her up. Uh, from there, they brought her to Pornishan. See my uncle. He, well, he, he was uh, he's Cajun too, you know. Yeah. So, especially that's part of the, the country, right? Everybody spoke French. That's why she wound up. she wound up in um, Pontchartrain. She must have thought she had gone to heaven. Uh, I don't know. Pontchartrain and to Paris are a big difference. His wife and infant son's arrival in South Louisiana generated so much fanfare 
that the local newspaper covered the story. The Homa Times ran this article, Paris to Pointe-aux-Chiens is hard road, says war wife. The paper featured a photograph of his wife, Jeanette Cardinal Neal, and their baby boy, Mitchell, on the front page. The reporter needed a local interpreter himself to communicate with Dennis's wife. The road from Paris to Pointe-aux-Chiens was long and hard, but the people were so nice, she said. The language in western France is quite similar in sound that is spoken here, explained the young war wife, who said that she had no trouble in understanding French in South Louisiana. Dennis went on to have a long career working for Texaco. He and his wife raised four children in a home where both languages were spoke. Their daughter, Monica Neal Pellegrin, was kind enough to provide us with some details about her parents and their unique story. Thank you, Jason, so much for having me on the Frenchie podcast and to have the opportunity to tell a little bit about my father, Dennis Neal, who was a French-speaking interpreter in World War II, and of course about my mother, Jeanette Cardinal, who he met while stationed in France. My father was introduced to my mother by a maid who worked at the apartment complex that my grandmother managed and where my mother's family lived in Paris. This apartment complex was one of the many places my father drove his commanding officer to. My parents were married at La Madeleine Church in Paris on July 21, 1945. My mother wanted to give birth to their first child in France. After my brother was born, there was a waiting period of six months before they could leave France to sail to the United States. My mother left Paris to live with my father in a little Cajun town, Pont-aux-Chiens, in Terrebonne Parish, where my father was born and raised on a farm. My father was one of 11 siblings. Jeanette had no problems communicating with everyone. They all spoke Cajun French. My three brothers and I were raised with our parents speaking French to each other. So we all learned the French language at a very early age. My mother communicated with her French family by mail Phone calls did not happen until the 1970s. There were four, I'm sorry, there were seven war brides in Terrebonne Parish who all bonded as family since they had all left their families to come to the United States. My siblings and I had French war bride godmothers. My father was a very hard worker and he was the best husband and father. He worked six and six for Texaco for 35 years, and on his days off, he was a jack of all trades, carpentry, electrical, plumbing, you name it, he did it. My mother and father were able to visit her family in France 11 times in their 64 years of marriage. My father, my father loved to hunt, fish, trawl, crab, my mother would cook it all. She was an excellent cook. My parents had one of the best love stories ever, thanks to my father being a French interpreter in the war. Thanks again, Jason, for having me.
I first met Dennis Neal and his wife some 20 years ago at the HOMA World War II Roundtable Discussion Group meetings, where I gave several talks on World War II veteran stories over the years. Some of those presentations were videotaped and have since been digitized and are available to the public. Dennis was a strong supporter of the Regional Military Museum in HOMA, which opened in 2005. The museum is the brainchild of my good friend C.J. Christ, a Cold War veteran who flew B-29 bombers and who started the World War II Roundtable Group. He is a military historian and renowned expert on the German U-boat campaign in the Gulf of Mexico in World War II. For more on the Regional Military Museum, let's welcome the Executive Director, Dexter Babin. Thank you for having me on the show, Jason. Located near historic downtown Houma, Louisiana, the Regional Military Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to preserving the memory of those who served. While displaying artifacts from the Civil War to the modern day, the museum also focuses on local history, featuring South Louisiana during World War II. Travel back to a time when Houma housed a massive blimp base to help combat the German U-boat threat in the Gulf of Mexico, while German POWs worked the sugarcane and rice fields. Other displays include an authentic Bell UH-1 Huey helicopter that was used in combat during Vietnam, an F-4 Phantom retired by the Air Force, a full-scale model of a TBM Avenger, the same plane that President George H.W. Bush piloted in World War II, and the museum is also proud to display one of President Eisenhower's Air Force One aerial commanders. We are happy to support the Frenchies podcast with its vital mission in preserving the stories of Cajun soldiers for future generations. Keep up the good work, Jason. This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. Up next, we have the Cajun Ace, the incredible story of the legendary Marine pilot from St. Martinville, Colonel Jeff DeBlanc. We'd like to thank our sponsors, the Acadian Museum in Erath, the Regional Military Museum in Homa, the Atchafalaya National Heritage Area, and Codafield, the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana. And a special congratulations goes to our friend, Norris Morvon, who was recently awarded the French National Order of the Legion of Honor by the French Consulate in New Orleans at a grand ceremony at the National World War II Museum. The Frenchie Podcast music is provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura. <laughs>